0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
1: This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. I would say that about 90% of my Instagram feed these days is skincare products. This is probably a monster of my own making since I'm fascinated by skincare and I can't help but click on ads for the latest creams, serums or potions that promise to erase years off of my face. I've been interested in skincare for a long time, at least ever since I started to notice the first signs of aging under my eyes, on my forehead, the gentle, general sag that can make me feel old and tired. But it seems like new treatments are coming out every day, treatments that speak directly to all of my skin worries. You may have heard of microneedling, a procedure where your skin is punctured with tiny holes to stimulate collagen and elastin production, two proteins that keep your skin looking supple. And it keeps evolving. There is microneedling with plasma to boost the effect. And now there is microneedling with a product based on stem cells.
2: Now, stem cells are the next best thing.
1: This is Akis Donos.
2: I'm a family nurse practitioner specializing in aesthetic dermatology.
1: We're at Aeon Aesthetics. It's a boutique clinic on New York City's Upper East Side. I've come here to give this treatment a try. Akis asks me a few questions.
0: Have you ever done it before? No. No? Mm -mm. Do you have any makeup on your skin? Mm -mm. No. You know it's going to be red, right? Afterwards. For about two to four days.
1: Okay. Is it bright red? Is red like a bad sunburn? Ooh, okay. Like red. He gets a bunch of supplies and seems ready for business. Okay, so what are we gonna do first?
2: First, what we're gonna do? We're gonna get you comfortable, Mm -hmm. and we are gonna numb you.
1: He spreads gel all over my face, and soon my skin starts to tingle. All right, I'm getting very numb. My lips feel a little funny. My face feels kind of cold and sweaty a bit, but not, you know, yeah, numb. The stem cell treatment I'm about to receive is stored in a small vial. I've been curious about this approach. I talked to the chief scientist at the company that makes this product, Antiage. His name is Rob Knight.
2: So stem cells are really great because they have a real nice capacity to regenerate. So when your tissue is normally just turning over and growing and cells are dying just as a normal process of just in life, the new cells and new tissue is regenerated from stem cells. So stem cells have this real nice regenerative capacity.
1: Rob says stem cells can stimulate collagen production and they have anti-inflammatory properties. He says to make this product, the company uses bone marrow stem cells from human donors, which they grow and multiply in their lab. Then they have a process where these cells secrete their regenerative powers, which are then used in this product. Rob has worked with stem cells as a scientist for over a decade, using them in the treatment of scars.
2: So it's really just taking the research and the information people have been getting from drug discovery and regenerative therapies and then applying that research to the cosmetic aesthetic market.
1: Which brings us back to the treatment I'm about to get. So we're about to get started here. My face has been numbing for about half an hour, and Akis comes back, and he's getting out a device called a skin pen, which will puncture those little holes into my skin, all while working little drops of the stem cell solution into my face. How comfortable is it? That's
3: totally fine. Anything? No.
1: That's it? Oh, wow. So then, I guess the numbing did the trick. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it feels like um, as if I'm holding a needle on, like, just toward my skin ever so slightly. But it doesn't hurt at all. Like, not even a little bit. 15 minutes later, I'm done. How did I do? You did amazing. You didn't even blink. <laughs> All right. So you tell me, how do you feel? <laughs> it felt fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the nose, it doesn't hurt at all. It just feels so blah funny because it's, ticklish. it's so ticklish and weird. Hey. And I think my eyes teared up. Afterwards, I was red like a lobster. I wasn't supposed to wash my face to make sure the treatment kept working on my skin, and I was grateful to be wearing a mask on the train ride back to Philly. The next day, the red had subsided, and the day after, it was pretty much gone. Now, a few weeks later, my skin definitely has a nice glow to it, I'm not sure I see any reductions in lines or wrinkles, but then again, it's hard to keep track of them all these days. And this is the kind of treatment you're supposed to do every few months to see real results. These types of procedures are expensive, so repeat visits are probably not in the cards for me. But I'm still intrigued by all of these new options that are out there. Facials and peels, lotions, serums, at-home lasers, the promise of beautiful skin at any age. On this episode... New Frontiers in Skincare and the Quest for Eternal Youth. We'll talk about cutting-edge products, find out about some shady aspects of the Botox business and hear from a reporter who's seen the future of skincare up close. To get started, we wanted a dermatologist to help us decode some of the options that are available, What actually works and how? What are the risks and benefits? So we reached out to Janine Luke. She is a board-certified dermatologist at Loma Linda University Medical Center in Southern California. She also offers skincare tips and advice on Instagram and TikTok at jlukemd. She told me a lot of external factors can damage our skin – Sun exposure, pollution, bad diet, smoking, and then there are internal factors at play. Collagen production decreases, and our bone structure changes as we age. Now, when we're
4: talking about bone changes, what are we seeing there? So we can get some resorption of bone over time, the bone provides that, you know, structure for our skin. So what happens is if we weaken or lose some of that structure, we start to get a little bit of sagging in the skin over time.
1: So is this like literally my, I'm touching my cheekbone right now, is it those bones get smaller or what's going on?
4: Yes, where basically you get a little bit of bone that gets broken down and is not replenished over time. Ah, okay. So it's almost like a
1: scaffolding, if I imagine it like a scaffolding. Exactly. Okay, and it's holding up a cloth and whatever is underneath it gets smaller and subsequently the cloth looks like more drapey.
4: Absolutely. Our skin serves as almost like a drape, as you will, for the underlying structure of our bones, our muscles, our other soft tissue. We can also lose volume or fat from our face, one with weight changes, but also as we age over time as well. And collagen production starts to slow down at what age? so we can start to see it slow down in our late 20s and 30s but it more predictably decreases there's a decreased production 40 and above and you know as we continue to age we tend to lose more collagen but also we're not producing as much so our body also eats up you know some of the collagen and the elastin fibers in our skin but then it's also not replenished mm. None of this sounds good. (laughs) There's things we can do, though. Janine
1: says sunscreen is key. She recommends a broad-spectrum product with an SPF of 30 or higher. A healthy diet is helpful, staying hydrated, all that good stuff. But I wanted to hear about the things that are happening under the skin, especially collagen loss. When it comes to collagen... Is that something we can influence and replenish? I get targeted all day long with products that boost collagen supposedly in one way or another, whether that's stuff that I can drink or a pill I
4: can take or some lotion I can put on. Is that possible? So what we know and have the most have most extensively researched is the ingredient tretinoin. And so that is something that is topically applied and has Shown in several studies that it can increase collagen production. And so I usually recommend people use some form of either retinoid, which is the prescription type. Um, tretinoin is a prime example, or retinol, which is an over-the-counter version. Now, a lot of times people will ask about, you know, collagen supplements, things like that. I think it's safer to say that if you're applying it topically directly to the skin, that gives you a more targeted approach as opposed to trying to drink something and then hope that it's going to get to the area that you're wanting to get to.
1: Now, I have used, I don't think I've used any prescription strength type uh, version of this, but it also seems to make your skin a little red and maybe shedding a little bit. Is that supposed to be part of the process? Correct.
4: And so it is common to see a little bit of dryness or even peeling of the skin when especially when you initially start using it which is why I do recommend that people kind of start slow and increase Mm -hmm. their use as their skin can tolerate it. Another thing that this cream is helpful for is helping your skin cells turn over more regularly. That is also a process that our skin normally cycles. And as we age, sometimes that process is not as efficient. And so using a retinoid or a retinol can help your skin cycle more effectively, getting the old dead skin cells from the surface of your skin off and revealing the newer, nicer skin from underneath. So yes, it's normal to experience a little bit of dryness or flaking or peeling. So I usually recommend just starting out using it a couple times a week And if their skin is fine after doing that, then they can add a day or so every week or two.
1: Now, you have a TikTok where you discuss some of the must-haves in terms of skincare. And one of the things you mentioned is niacinamide.
4: What is that? So niacinamide is um, kind of a B vitamin derivative, Ah. and it actually has a lot of great benefits when applied topically to the skin. So I like it because it does help regulate oil production for people who may be oily. It also is very effective in people who have issues with dark spots or discoloration, because it helps block the transfer of pigment from the melanocytes or color cells to the actual skin cells. There's a process by which our color cells transfer pigment, so that way it can be seen on the surface of the skin. For people who are making too much pigment or they have issues with creating pigment after, say, like acne or something like that, niacinamide is helpful in blocking that transfer so they don't get dark spots after they've had you know, inflammation in their skin or acne or some other condition.
1: Another must-have from your list is hyaluronic acid. Is that a moisturizer or how do we look at
4: that? Yeah, I love hyaluronic acid, especially in the winter. The good thing about hyaluronic acid is that it has the ability to attract and draw water. And so it's really great if people um, need moisture in their skin. I usually recommend a tip of applying hyaluronic acid while the skin is slightly damp, again, so that way it can draw all the extra water into the skin. And then I like to have people apply like a thicker moisturizer on top of that in order to keep that moisture in the skin.
1: So is the strategy here to increase cell turnover, get collagen production going, or keep it
4: steady as possible and and moisturize, moisturize. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I always tell people that, you know, having a skincare regimen should not be, you know, very complicated. I think there are very simple things that people can incorporate and really preserve, you know, what they have and try to at least mitigate some of the effects of aging and some of the damage that can be accumulated over time.
1: How can we as consumers understand the products that are being thrown at us, marketed at us.
4: How do I know if this stuff is any good? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that I get a lot as well. I see a lot of patients, and a lot of times they, you know, have brought in like bags of products, things that they're using, and so that's why I usually recommend partnering with a dermatologist or esthetician, someone who's a licensed professional, to help guide you. Everyone has different and unique concerns, and so what I do with my patients is based on their skin condition. Their unique concerns, where they are in life, how they want to approach the aging process—we kind of craft something that's one again simple, but too targeted. There are no magic pills, no magic creams, no magic treatments. We do do a lot of you know great treatments, and we have a lot of products that are excellent, but not one cream is going to do it all. How do you manage expectations? With the people you work with,
1: you know, because I I think some of what we're being told, especially by a lot of the advertising, is that, oh, none of us have to age and we can all look like we're 25, which would be fantastic, but (laughs) it's not happening. So how do you talk about that?
4: And, and and that's a great question. And I do feel like there are different philosophies about aging, where we have some people who just want to let nature take its course, mm-hmm. and they don't really want any interventions. We've got people on the other extreme who do not want to age at all costs and maybe may do a little bit more than what they necessarily need. And then you've got the people who are in between. And this is these are the people that I love to target, where they don't want to look 20 years Younger, but they do want to look like a better or their best version of themselves. We want people to say, Wow, like you look rested, you look happy, you look great, where they feel better about themselves. And that's because they've, you know, either incorporated a regimen or done some cosmetic procedure that's allowed them to make a slight adjustment, a slight improvement that doesn't dramatically change the way they look. So it's not like, oh, wow, you had work done. (laughs) Absolutely. That's what we try to avoid is, oh, what did you have? We want people to kind of notice that something is different, but not be able to exactly pinpoint what was done. (laughs)
1: Let's talk about some of the procedures that are available now beyond the lotions and potions, starting with injectables, like Botox. What can they accomplish? What's your
4: take on them? Yeah, so I love that Botox can one helps smooth the surface of the skin. I'm finding a lot of younger patients who are kind of in this like prejuvenation mindset where they're trying to prevent and preserve and so what I love about Botox is that it actually works very well it's a targeted therapy it specifically addresses the muscle so as we express ourselves as we focus and you know laugh and cry and do all of the different things that we do do, uh, we're moving muscles in our face. And so neuromodulators such as Botox, but there are several others, can basically specifically stop that process for a short period of time where it blocks the signal for the muscle to move. And so you don't create the creases that are then leading to deeper lines and wrinkles in the face.
1: Now there are also injections that target that loss of collagen that we've talked about where mm-hmm. there is basically something injected into or under the skin to give
4: it that that boost. Correct. What are those things? So we typically think of those um, in the class of injectables called fillers. Mm -hmm. And so again, what we're trying to do is restore some of that volume that can sometimes be lost. A very common type of filler is a hyaluronic acid filler to really push from underneath and give a good lifting and restore the volume in the face. Tell me about lasers. When and how are they used in terms of skin rejuvenation? We have resurfacing lasers, which target the top layer of skin. They can remove that top layer depending on the type of resurfacing that we're doing to kind of help remove some of the sunspots, photo damage. But then we can be more aggressive with our laser resurfacing and, again, boost collagen so that way we can soften some of those fine lines and wrinkles as well.
1: Now, some of this technology is coming to our homes I'm getting, again, a lot of ads for for at-home lasers. Are they
4: any yeah. good or are they just so weak because I'm allowed to use it? Correct. I, I typically <laughs> recommend um, doing those procedures in office because you know your your doctor is able to be more aggressive but also to know exactly what you need i think you know a lot of times with the home devices it has to be kind of standardized because they can only you know do so much with what's available over the counter and everybody has to be able to use it similarly so i think that's where their issues can arise because It is almost like a cookie cutter, and one size sometimes does not apply to everyone.
1: Before we go, what is your skincare
4: routine? What do you do? Like, you know, in terms of lotion, potion, in terms of treatments you like? Yeah, so um, I do a very simple skincare routine Um, in the morning. I cleanse my skin, I apply an antioxidant serum, and then I apply my sunscreen, and that's pretty much it. I have two younger children, so I'm always rushing them along to get them off to school on time, so I don't have a lot of time in the morning. In the evening, I do the same thing where I cleanse, but then I do more things that are targeted, either retinol or or things that may target brown spots, peptides, things that can help kind of firm my skin. And then I love to incorporate things that address the surface of my skin, like chemical peels, mm-hmm. which help kind of reveal um, a newer, nicer layer of skin from underneath by causing the skin cells to kind of break apart from one another and peel off. I do do you know Botox, fillers, things like that. Not all the time, But I do it to where, you know, again, I can kind of prevent deep lines from forming and then as far as you know other procedures lasers and things like that i do like to do microneedling i often will incorporate that with the uh, platelet rich plasma so i'm sure you may have heard of like mm-hmm. that vampire facial <laughs> so i do love to do those i do i'd love to do those for my patients and then i also love to do those for myself and then i do a little mild laser resurfacing so again nothing major <laughs> at this point just you know, a couple little tweaks that, you know, little things that you can do to enhance.
1: Janine Luke is a board-certified dermatologist at Loma Linda University Medical Center in Southern California. You can find her on Instagram and TikTok at jlukemd. Coming up, when Botox was FDA-approved as a skincare treatment, it quickly slipped out of doctors' offices into all kinds of settings with mixed results.
2: How are you able to do this so inexpensively? He said, "Oh, I buy in bulk, a lot of bulk." But he doesn't tell you what he's buying or what he's giving you.
1: That's next on the Pulse.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Lessons in Chemistry. Be inspired. Read Lessons in Chemistry, the number one global bestseller with more than 6 million copies sold. Meet Elizabeth Zott, a 60s-era scientist who brings her smarts and unapologetic worldview to a TV cooking show that has the power to change lives. Lessons in Chemistry is available wherever books are sold from Doubleday.
1: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares one reason this work is so important.
4: We need to know what's the optimal way that you would dose physical activity just like you might a medicine? And without research, to be able to understand that, we can't maximize the benefits of physical activity for cancer
3: prevention.
0: To learn more, go to cancer.org.
3: On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness.
2: I get in my own way by, like... Overprivileging the present.
3: That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present.
2: I feel like being present is overrated.
3: I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott, and we're talking about skincare. Botox is a huge part of modern skincare getting Botox is about as casual as getting your teeth cleaned or getting a facial. And that is somewhat surprising if you think about the fact that it's made from one of the most powerful poisons on earth, botulinum toxin. It can develop in poorly canned food and even a tiny amount can kill you because it paralyzes the muscles used for breathing. But when injected, just the right amount, in just the right place, it turns out to smooth frown lines and crow's feet like a dream. Despite the terrifying potential of the active ingredient, Botox is available and popping up in all kinds of settings, injected freely, anywhere from doctor's offices to house parties. And that has created some problems. Grant Hill has more.
2: A few months ago, I talked to a plastic surgeon for another story I was working on. When he leaned in, lowered his voice a bit, and asked, You want a real story? Uh, yeah, I responded. He proceeded to tell me about what he called an open secret in his industry. A real moneymaker that no one wanted to talk about. Diluted Botox. It was the perfect scheme, he said. A way for providers to save money and, because it was less potent, keep patients coming back for more, more often. But when I tried to follow up on this, the doctor seemed to get cold feet. He stopped returning my calls. So I started asking around, wanting to know if this was indeed a thing, and if so, how it came to this. I'm not suggesting that anyone does this, but, but this is how it could happen, right? Kevin Duplaschan is the president of the American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery. He had not heard about physicians diluting injections, but he did say it was definitely possible to do.
6: You know, you get a vial of Botox and you're supposed to put in two
2: cc's of, of bacteriostatic water, which is kind of what's recommended to, to dilute the product and create a certain concentration. Well, somebody decides that they want to put in double the amount of water in, in the product and inject that, I mean, who's going to know differently, right? And so certainly that's a way to increase your profit. And, you know, I mean, who, who can tell that? I mean, that's, you're very vulnerable. This sense of consumer vulnerability kept coming up in the conversations I had about Botox. From the tip about the diluted injections to all kinds of other issues. And in part, this is due to the incredible popularity of Botox. From the moment it was approved as a skincare treatment by the FDA, the market for it has grown and grown and grown. Celebrities couldn't stop talking about it. TV shows featured it. Middle-aged moms craved it. And Botox almost immediately slipped out of the confines of the doctor's office into all kinds of settings. Kevin Duplichand says it's absolutely central in his own practice. Integral for growth.
0: You know, frankly, I think it's everything. I really do.
2: Botox set the tone for the many injectables that would follow. When Kevin started administering Botox to his patients in the mid-90s, he encouraged first-timers to bring a friend, and both get injected. Kevin bought Botox in big 100-unit vials that only had a four-hour shelf life once opened. So this reduced waste, but it also helped spread the word about what Botox could do. And this kind of thing was encouraged by the company that was producing Botox. The company, Allergan, that introduced this, frankly, did an incredible job of teaching us how to grow these practices and making it available to people. Making it available to people by making Botox itself available in more places. And that included new business models.
4: Allergan has this program and they call it the naive Botox program for people who have never had it.
2: Allergan provided training and educational resources, not just to dermatologists, but to other providers like Francis and Colleen Ocunzo. In the 1990s, this husband and wife team revolutionized the beauty industry.
6: We believed that spas could change lives.
2: They owned two beauty spas in Boston, think facials and massages, when they read about a laser that could remove age spots from the skin.
6: And we're like, oh, This doesn't belong in a dermatology office, it belongs in a spa.
2: A kind of turbocharged beauty spa with high-tech options for its clients. They took the idea to the company that made the laser, pitched it.
6: They got excited and we came together and we put a laser in a spa.
2: It was a smashing success. They eventually merged their company with the company that made the lasers and a new concept was born, the medical spa. So naturally, when Botox hit the market, the Ocunzos were all over it. Francis says injectables like Botox are the bread and butter of med spas these days.
6: At this point, I actually have to work hard to find locations that have less than 60 percent of their business being done with injectables.
2: The medical spa industry is now a $15 billion industry, with an estimated 9,000 in operation in the US today.
6: These medical spas have positioned themselves much more like a very cool either
2: spa or salon. That's Alex Tiersch. He's a lawyer and CEO of the American Med Spa Association, which provides legal resources and training for med spas all over the country.
6: So it's, it doesn't feel like a doctor's office. There's a much more kind of fashionable and flashy and sexy appeal to, to, to going in to these places and getting work done as opposed to going to a very sterile and clinical doctor's office. But what's happened with that is that it, it does give the impression to a lot of people that it's it's kind of an easy pseudo-medical procedure that, that you're going in to get.
2: He says the beginning of the Botox boom in med spas had a bit of a Wild West vibe.
6: Tons of people out there making millions of dollars running these very, very cool, innovative practices, but they were all non-compliance.
2: Non-compliance for issues like how the Botox was being stored or who was doing the injections, what kind of training they had. He says the rules and regulations can be confusing and nobody seemed to be very concerned or watching too closely.
6: The enforcement mechanism for this industry is controlled by each individual state, by the medical board or the nursing board in that particular state. Enforcement is pretty lackadaisical in in this industry, because there just isn't enough resources on the state level to really police what's going on.
2: He says things are starting to change. More and more investigations are happening every year. And many customers want to be certain that the people who are injecting them are well-trained and know what they're doing. I talked to a woman who was unhappy with a recent experience. We'll call her Riley. She had found a discount for Botox online. She thought she was going to a dermatologist's office, but found herself at a random office building in Cherry Hill, New Jersey.
3: There was nothing medical in there.
2: When she arrived, others were sitting around in a conference room, waiting to see this doctor, who was treating patients behind a curtain. I heard people in the conference room saying, oh, this is the cheapest you'll ever find. Eventually, it was Riley's turn, The doctor pulled something out of a duffel bag. I'm like, how are you able to do this so inexpensively? He said, oh, I buy in bulk, a lot of bulk. But he doesn't tell you what he's buying or what he's giving you. And he would never actually say what the price is or how many units you're getting. And there was no receipt. Riley thought about reporting this doctor. Eventually, others did. But not before one of his patients was hospitalized after being injected with unknown fillers. The doctor's license was suspended. So if you were to get Botox, would you rather be injected in a conference room by a doctor with a duffel bag full of vials or somebody's house? Somebody you know and trust. That is another way people are getting their wrinkles erased.
6: Okay, so guess what I am on my way to go do? Get
5: Botox, baby.
2: <laughs> Summer Ray Leach first heard about Botox when she was working on a photo shoot in Florida.
5: One of the models who was a little bit older than me, she said that she was having a Botox party at her house.
2: A Botox party. There would be wine, little meatballs, snacks, even a dog. And, of course, discounted Botox she decided to go.
5: The person that was giving the Botox there was super nice, super professional. We all filled out a waiver, you know, before we started just to make sure that, you know, if anything happens, things like that. So all of the safety precautions were there. And she was, of course, a professional. And so uh, it was such a good experience.
2: The casual vibe of it all, but with a professional injecting the Botox, it's what convinced Summer to get Botox in the first place. Though, she has since come to suspect that the Botox she got at that party was diluted. The results didn't last nearly as long as injections she later got in other places. So, why run the risk of getting diluted Botox? Or being in a space that makes you feel uncomfortable when you can take matters into your own hands? Do-it-yourself Botox is, as I learned apparently a very popular pastime.
3: Hi everyone, welcome to DIY Beauty Lab. Today I'm gonna be doing a full face of Botox with Botulax. If you're interested in knowing how to do DIY Botox at home, then stick around.
2: This DIY Botox tutorial has almost 80,000 views on YouTube and it's not nearly the only one.
3: Another quick
4: disclaimer, I am not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, I don't have a license or certificate in anything. This is my DIY journey. I'm sharing
2: with A quick search you. reveals a thriving online market for illegal foreign injectables in the US. They're remarkably easy to buy. No healthcare license, no business license, or prescription needed.
0: Yay, got some goodies from acecustom.com. So, we're
2: going to open Social media influencers up? guide viewers to websites with global shipping where you can buy syringes. Dermal fillers, Korean Botox, even lidocaine, a powerful anesthetic. Some of these products are available for purchase on Amazon. Most are non-FDA approved products coming from outside the States. I asked the FDA about all this, but they did not share any data or specific information about these products with me. So I tried to talk to influencers behind this and the people who are injecting themselves with foreign Botox-like products. They did not want to talk. One of these influencers said they were afraid of being deplatformed. Others told me the attention might make it harder for them to get their hands on these products in the future. Why pay $500 for a treatment that may be diluted when you could do it at home for $50 yourself, one wrote to me. It's not without risks, and the internet is full of Botox gone wrong type stories. But as our beauty standards continue to expect wrinkle-free foreheads as the baseline, it seems like Botox and other injectables will only continue to grow.
1: That was Grant Hill reporting. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a lot of skincare innovation comes our way from South Korea. We'll get a tour of a country obsessed with flawless skin.
3: You can stand on a street corner and see a place called The Face Shop, which is exactly what it is, across the street from a face shop, across the street from another face shop.
1: That's next on The Pulse.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Satva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit slash npr and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at Cancer.org.
3: I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful— it's part game show, part existential deep dive,
4: and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Only
3: from NPR.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about innovation in skincare. NPR host Elise Hugh feels like she's had a bit of a preview. I've seen the future, and it's poreless. She's reading from her upcoming book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Elise lived in Seoul, South Korea, for several years, starting in 2015 as a correspondent for NPR.
3: Almost immediately, I realized that by making the move, I had time traveled forward and was face to face with the future of how we might live, look and relate to one another. South Korea's capital is an endless assault of images blasting in your direction on every street corner at every hour. Many of them are faces. They tower above you on digital signage glowing from the sides of skyscrapers, flash by in subway stations deep underground, or whip past on oversized screens attached to the tops of cars. K-beauty is
1: one of the country's best-known exports, along with K-pop and TV shows like Squid Game. The beauty industry is subsidized by the government, and it has exploded over the past two-plus decades. Skincare is everywhere, and it's affordable. So when you got to Seoul, did you have any sense of this cosmetic empire that you were about to enter. Did you? What did you know about this beauty industry?
3: I knew that it had become more and more of a curiosity and interest among my friends, my cooler friends, my hip friends. They were already starting to do Korean face masks, those sheet masks, which are now so ubiquitous that you can find them at Costco. And this was 2015, so it was kind of on the ascent all of this hadn't quite peaked yet and become part of the zeitgeist. I knew that plastic surgery in South Korea had become popular. I had seen the stories about Korea ranking highest in the world for cosmetic surgery or cosmetic surgeons per capita. But what really surprised me was the preponderance of skin care and cosmetics products and shops available in front of me in every direction. You can stand on a street corner and see a place called The Face Shop, which is exactly what it is, across the street from a face shop, across the street from another face shop. The most expensive real estate in all of Seoul at the time was this corner of Myeongdong, which is long known for being a cosmetics district, where a store called Nature Republic occupied the space. And Nature Republic is known for its peels and its serums and its various masks as well. And so I just... Didn't know about the abundance, the density of these stores, the preponderance of it, and kind of how much it was expected that you do the work of appearance. Were you familiar with
1: these types of products? You know, I'm thinking like my knowledge is about limited to cleanser and a scrub and a night cream and a day cream and maybe an eye cream, maybe some lip balm. But it sounds like
3: there are just so many more options. So many more options. It's the mustard problem at the grocery store, only it's skin serums. Uh, (laughs) It was around this time that the Korean-American Charlotte Cho, who I do write about, coined this idea of the Korea the K-beauty 10-step routine. And that consists of 10 steps that you can practice as part of your skincare routine each morning or each night. What are the 10 steps? I can't even... Possibly think what 10 steps one could take. It starts with two kinds of cleansing. Double cleansing, which is something popularized by K-Beauty. So an oil cleanser, which helps remove the makeup or dirt or residue that's on your face from the day. And then the gel cleanser or the traditional foam cleanser that's more soapy. And then you exfoliate. Then toner. Then some sort of essence, which is moisturizing. Eye cream, also moisturizing. Sheet mask, also moisturizes. Serum moisturizer, so this is moisturizer in the form of lotion, and then sunscreen. How important is the
1: packaging on these products? The way you describe it in the book, it sounds whimsical, it sounds really fun, it sounds like they are just visually super appealing.
3: They are. They're so cute. It's hard not to buy some of these products because it's like, oh, that's so cute, that little panda on top of the ice cooling eye stick. Or or you have the lotions that are packaged in fruit, you know, so I have to buy them and then I have to buy them for my kids, which then introduces skincare products to my kids <laughs> at, a, at a rather young age. So I, even though I can see the programming and see kind of the insidiousness of it, it's irresistible sometimes.
1: And when you talk to people about their skin routines, did this feel like something they did as an act of taking care of themselves, as something they enjoyed, or did this feel like an obligation?
3: This is why beauty is such a fascinating topic for me, because there is both pleasure and there is labor involved. And there's a paradox, right? We do want to take care of ourselves. We do enjoy the kind of healing touch of a facial or a massage. But then if you have to spend a lot of time and energy researching and buying products and then getting these products right and then adhere to the maintenance of your skin and your nails or your hair, then at some point it gets really tiresome, right? It can feel like work. I would say that everybody's sweet spot differs. There were plenty of Korean women who felt like they didn't have a choice but to maintain their appearance because having a good appearance was not only important because of the traditional way we look at it, which is we make snap judgments based on people's beauty, but also in Korean culture, it has come to be understood as a kind of work that you should do on yourself, right? So if you don't maintain your outer appearance, then you are seen as lazy or incapable.
1: And I guess appearance plays a much bigger role in all kinds of settings. You describe that people have to include pictures in job applications of any kind. Like, it just seems like there's so much more emphasis on appearance.
3: Yes. In Korea, they use this term called specs, which, you know, Mike and we use specs to talk about what our latest computer specs are, right? Like, how's your processor, your RAM, those kinds of things. We apply the specs to gadgets but Koreans use specs as a term to compare people. The usage is believed to have originated from Korean matchmaking agencies, which apply a formula for their clients that are looking for a match. So for a woman, specs that would earn you a higher rating would include weighing a certain weight, often it's quite low, something like 110 pounds, wearing at least a C cup bra, Exhibiting a small, fair-skinned face, always wearing makeup, and then there's a quotient for cuteness as well. So these are all described as specs. They're specs for men as well. And so you, if your body isn't up to spec, then it seems natural to pay for upgrades. Is there any backlash? Are there people
1: who are not doing this or who are saying, I don't feel like
3: participating Yes, there was essentially a general strike against aesthetic or display labor, as these Korean feminists called it in 2018. There's no official count, but hundreds of thousands of women who went online and also took to the streets to protest the amount of work that and the expectations for how women in Korea were to look, but also to behave. Korea is a very modern society, but really patriarchal on so many fronts and ranks near the last when it comes to every gender equality index you can think of. Very few Korean women are at the heads of companies. The representation of women in its legislature, the numbers of women lawmakers in the legislature, are near the numbers of North Korean women in North Korea's similar body. And there's just a pervasive attitude of sexism towards women, and, and which I felt quite acutely as an Asian woman myself living in Seoul for so many years. And so the tensions there really bubbled up to the surface in 2018, and it resulted in protests and demonstrations in the streets, but also an online protest called Escape the Corset, where women would crush their compacts and throw them in the trash or make videos of themselves cutting their hair, make videos of themselves wiping all the existing makeup off their faces. It was really inspiring to see, I thought, that people had had it. And I question the the lasting impact of that because... While there were sort of short-term effects where there was a dip in consumption of skincare and cosmetics, according to some government numbers, I don't know what the long tail effect of that action was, except it does present a different model of what women can be and what women can look like.
1: Elise says writing this book and spending time in South Korea has changed her own views on beauty and how she feels about her appearance.
3: Previously, I think that I would have judged myself harshly if my weight went up or my weight kind of fluctuated. And that would actually be tied to whether I had a good day. And, you know, if I had a good hair day, I would feel better. And if I had a bad hair day, I would feel worse. And I think that I was able to finally sort of break that linkage between my appearance and my worth. And a lot of it is because I really drilled down and thought about this, right? And was intentional about this understanding that actually, you know, We are mere mortals. Our bodies are constantly changing. They are dynamic. I've let myself off the hook in that I don't place so much value or my self-worth on how I look, but rather have focused more on what ideas I can put out there, my body's capacity to feel, and the diversity inherent in all of us. I think my problem isn't a specific Korean beauty standard or specific American or Eurocentric beauty standard, my issue and something I really wanted to question is standardization itself. Why we drive towards, and technology is a reason, but why we drive towards trying to look like one another and our ideas for what an ideal gets standardized in a way that leaves a lot of us on the margins. And so I have a far deeper appreciation for the diversity in the way all of us look and the magic kind of that we can all bring that's totally irrespective of what we look like.
1: Elise Yu is a host-at-large at at NPR. Her book is called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. We've posted a longer version of our interview with Elise on our website. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tongue, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
0: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral Health Reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. care. WHYY's Health and Science Reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.
3: On the TED Radio Hour, linguist Anne Curzan says she gets a lot of complaints about people using the pronoun they to refer to one person. I sometimes get into arguments with people where they will say to me, but it can't be singular, and I will say, but it is. The history behind words causing a lot of debate. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.